Good morning. When you go on a family road trip, who is the navigator of the family? The one that tends to be a little bit more uh, navigationally inclined, if you will. For those that are not, man, the GPS was a wonderful uh, expression of common grace, right? The fact that there's a device that knows where you are and knows where you're supposed to be going and then can take you there. I never liked it though when the GPS misplaces where I am and then sends me on a rabbit trail. It's much more common in the early days, thankfully, but a GPS is built on knowing where you are and knowing where you are trying to go and bringing you there. In many ways, this is exactly what Paul is doing in his apostolic work in Corinth. Paul, um, his job is to, according to Ephesians 3, to tell people about, especially the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. But it's also to give them the plan or the administration of the household of God. This is what it means for, to be the people of God living in light of the future kingdom of God. And so as we continue in 1 Corinthians, as we continue to see Paul as our guide and helping us understand what it means to live now in light of Jesus' future kingdom, we now start to see that he's shifting the topic to going about what does it mean to be the people in an orderly way in the gathering of his people. And so as we start looking at uh, establishing an order, we now come to a, a hotly, hotly debated passage. This is 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 2 through 16. And in this, we see this hotly debated topic around men and women. Paul is here and elsewhere laying out that men and women are distinct, they're equal, and yet ordered so that they can, as the church together, proclaim the image of God and the riches of Christ to the world. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11 talking about something that to us doesn't make any sense. Now, I want to preface this um, with a little bit of necessary nuance, okay? We're in a passage that in our cultural framework doesn't make any sense. But part of the nuance that's necessary is that we need to understand that the scripture finds itself in a cultural narrative. It is not a historical. It is found in a cultural moment. Jesus himself was born in a cultural moment, lived according to that culture. And we, <clears throat> as well, are in the midst of a culture, uh, a grand narrative, um, an understanding that also has a history of how certain passages are interpreted. This is a passage that has been greatly weaponized. And it's been a lot of times weaponized against women in particular. And so what I want to do is I want us as God's people, we need to commit to this. 
we're going to enter into this passage with nuance. This is not going to be a, um, a this or that. Because this requires not only understanding their cultural nuance, our cultural nuance, but it, it requires us to do it wisely, to do it gently, to understand that there's going to be lots of different ways in which there can be um, minefields that we're walking through in this passage. And we're going to do, I'm going to try to do it by God's grace as graciously and as gently as I possibly can, knowing that the idea of headship, as this passage talks about, has been um, such a controversial thing, both historically and progressively. So with that, let's dive in um, to the text, starting in verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For a woman doesn't cover her head. Um, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off and or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Verse 7. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her, her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Your first response should be, what? Like, huh? Like, who says, like, like uh, there's so many things that just don't compute. Now, here's why. Paul is in the midst of a cultural moment that is not anything like ours in some ways. The, the idea of hair and long hair and, and coverings and head coverings, that is not in our cultural framework at all. So as we unpack this, it's, it's really hard to do so. Now, I'm going to pause and say this. This is a, a foundation-laying type sermon. I'm only going to be able to do some, um, so much in 20 to 25 minutes. We're going to build off, to the, off of this in the coming days, and especially in chapter 14. I dive into more detail about the cultural and historical understanding of this passage in the teaching video associated with this. So if you want that, I encourage you to go there. I'm not going to dive too deep into that. I'm going to lay out the different things that what this passage and the scriptures give us about men and women and their relationship um, in the household of the family and in the household of God, which is the church. So the first thing 
is that men and women are distinct. They are distinct from one another. In verses 4 through 6, Paul, in essence, is trying to help them understand that when a man prophesies and a woman prophesies, they are to do it in a way that they are, it's understood that they are men, that men are being, um, men and women are doing it as women. They, um, and I know it's, it's hard to see that, but in underneath all the minutiae, he's wanting to help them see that there's a distinctiveness between a man and a woman. And that distinctiveness should not be lost. It should be maintained. This dates back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2. You see um, separateness or distinctiveness in all of God's created order. Heavens, earth, um, uh, sea, and land, uh, sky, and uh, dry land. And all of that, the culmination of that is man and woman, distinct from one another. And God says that this is very good. In the micro-creation story of Genesis 2, you see that man is created first, and there's not a, a suitable helper for him. All the animals go through, and there's nothing that really complements him. And so God in his grace, out of Adam's rib, forms the woman who is a suitable helper. Now, a helper is somebody, this is the Hebrew word azer. Now, we like to say, oh, you're a helper. You're not really that important. No, 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 no. This is language that's only used of woman in this passage in Genesis 1 and 2 and of God himself in relation to his people. That's a high calling. That's not a diminishing role. That's an important role to be a Azair, a helpmate. But it's also a suitable one. Animals aren't suitable because they're not like Adam. They're not the same species. So there's a likeness to man and woman, but there's a separateness from as well. There's a complement, a distinctiveness that um, God created. This is the a Hebrew word konegdo. It means similar but different or um, as opposite to. He's as a species opposite to in gender. Paul knows that that's how God created the world. That's what it will look like in new creation, in the new heaven and new earth. Jesus himself physically rose embodied in a male body. We will be given male and female bodies that we have. So part of our understanding of our identity is linked to the physical body that we have. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago about being embodied souls. Okay, So Paul has this framework and he says that we need to maintain this distinctiveness because this distinctiveness is good. Men don't act, um, dress or act like women when you pray or prophesy. Likewise, women don't do that when you are praying. Don't be like men or dress like men. Be distinctly woman as you pray or prophesy. And do it in a way that doesn't distract. That's also what's happening here. Be distinct in how, 
but don't distract one another from the very prayer that men, a prayer prophecy that men are giving, or the prayer prophecy that women are giving in the gathered place. And so maintain this distinctiveness. Now, what makes this passage a little bit difficult is that sometimes this passage has been utilized to maintain a cultural distinctiveness rather than a biblical distinctiveness. Um, the cultural distinctiveness is often that our understanding of what a man and what a woman are like can be more like our cultural understanding than our biblical understanding. I saw recently a tweet that talked about how a woman's job is to cook, is to clean, to knit and sew, to be a homemaker, um, and that's her job. And a man shouldn't do those things because it's a woman's job to do it. That is more cultural than biblical, as we'll talk about in a moment. So we have this uh, framework that says a man does these things and a woman does these things. But I want to, and we're going to unpack that in a moment, but I want to land on here that the, for some people, it's, it's almost offensive to say that there's a distinction between men and women. I mean, we have so much working towards a, um, a, a that men and women can choose their own genders, that there isn't a distinctiveness. There isn't a distinction between the two. That um, anything you can do, I can do better. And at the end of the day, from the biblical perspective, both man and woman, are, it's good that there's a distinction. This is a celebrated thing. This is something that's maintained. And part of our understanding of who we are should come from how God has gendered us. And so Paul is saying distinctiveness is good. Men, you are man given by God. Women, you are women given by God. Use your gifts out of that. So first, there is distinction. Second, there is equality. We see this in this passage in 11 verse 12. In the Lord, however, man is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. This is an understanding that there's an interdependence, and it's based off of the interdependence and the equality found in Genesis 1 and 2. Because both man and woman bear God's image, that means that there's a, they share equal, equally in significance, value, and worth. One is not more significant than the other. One is not more valuable than another. One is more not worthy than the other. This carries over to our understanding of how we are posture before God. Galatians 3, 28-29 says this, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So this is coming from an understanding of, as verse 27 says, baptized into Christ and being clothed with Christ. We men and women have equal standing before God, are equally justified before God, 
equally co-heirs with Christ, equally inheritors of the promise of God. We are co-heirs with Him. And so there is a standing before God where we are equal. Now this passage is used to show that there's no distinction, but that is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking about lack of distinction between men and women in Christ. It's talking about justification and right standing before Him. So there's equal significance, equal value, equal worth, equal standing before God. And as we'll see in chapter 12, there's equal giving of gifts to the body. Equal of giving of gifts between the men and women. In so many ways, so many people want to say that men have certain gifts and women have certain gifts. But this lacks a biblical understanding of what has actually happened through the lives of women in particular through the Old Testament. I'm just going to take a look at this and I want to, this is from an article by Justin Taylor and I'm just going to unpack a little bit of this. So in the Bible, women judge Israel. De that's Deborah. They win military victories in JL. Women save their husbands uh, in the story of Abigail. They save their children by Joshebed. And they save their city, um, the story of the Tekoite woman. And even their nation in the story of Esther. Women prophesied, Huldah, Philip's daughters. In this passage, you see it in verse 5, it's assumed that women will actually prophesy in the gathering. That women compose psalms and songs that appear in the scriptures, Hannah and Marie, for example. They explain and expound on the word of God to men. You see this uh, Priscilla with Apollos, who was a great Bible teacher. Women host churches. You see this in the uh, story of Chloe. Women run businesses in Lydia. They serve as deacons and patrons. The story of Phoebe. Phoebe was likely the one who also was the first person to expound on the letter of Romans to the Roman church. You see them co-labor with Paul in the gospel with his Judea and Syneche. And their women are identified as apostles in Romans 16 in the person of Junia. And this is what Justin Taylor says. I quote, And if there's a greater responsibility in human history than carrying the Messiah in your womb... I would like to hear about it. Speaking of Mary, women and men are equally given gifts, are equally called to live out who God has made them to be. They do it distinctly as men and distinctly as women, but they still are called to do it. And we have story after story of how the... Um, Women have done that, and I emphasize that because we typically forget those stories. We forget that those are given to us in the scriptures. And so, men and women are distinct. Men and women are equal. And, number three, men and women are ordered. In this passage, we see this in verse three. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every woman, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. That in creation, in this distinctiveness, in this equality, there's also an ordering not around significance, but around authority. We see this in the household, 
um, specifically in the in the oikos, the nuclear household, in the household of households, we'll t- talk about in a second. We see this in Ephesians five that the um, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of church. Same language that he uses here. Now, a lot of times when we talk about this this ordering, we it, it tends to be um, likened to uh, authority, and there is an authority that's been given. A husband and a wife. But when we think of authority, unfortunately, where that tends to go in our culture is that authority means you get what you want. So I'm an authority. I am 51%. You're 49%. Or I'm an authority. So uh, I'm going to make sure that we are the one that does what I think is best. What I want to submit to you is authority scripturally, godly, is not authority to get your way, but it's actually an authority to sacrifice. The more authority you are given means that the more you are called to sacrifice your desires for the desires of others. We see this in a husband and wife relationship in Ephesians 5 when um, husbands are likened to Christ and they're called to sacrifice Um, As Jesus sacrificed, which is what? Death. That's the call of authority that we have. Is there ordering? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches here in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. But it's an ordering to sacrifice. Ephesians 5.21, you mutually sacrifice for one another. And right after that, husbands are called to do that. And as Paul, who is our GPS whose job is to lay out how the church is to function, as the husband is to be um, have authority to sacrifice, and that's distinctly male, so you go to then, uh, 1 Timothy 3, in the same way elders, we believe, are called to be men to sacrifice, to lead in that way, to guard um, as they are designed and called by God to do that. Now, does that mean that women have nothing to do? Absolutely not. Did you hear the list that I just said? We want that. We want women to be flourishing and, and doing using the gifts, and we want everybody to be using the gifts that God has called them to use for the building up of the body. That is, And we want us to do it distinctly as God's designed us, and we want it to do it in a way that's ordered that God has also given us. Now, I, I want to say this. Do you hear the nuance? Like, this isn't like, um, this, and because this does require a lot of nuance that our culture doesn't want to allow for us. Oh, you believe in ordering, so you're a patriarch. No! Oh, you believe in distinction, so you must not love people that choose their own gender. No! Oh, you believe in equality, so you must believe there's not an ordering. No, that's not what we're saying. We're trying to have a robust, full picture of what the Bible gives us and how men and women are ordered, are equal, and are distinct from one another. Because brothers and sisters, and I'll close with this, it's when we enter into that space, when we enter into this nuance, when we enter into the distinction, the equality, the ordering, as we do that, we will actually start to proclaim Jesus more fully to people. When those who have authority sacrifice, 
when those who are equal submit, when those who have um, distinction are becoming one, as we do this as the people of God, as we wrestle with, okay, how do we do that in our cultural moment? What does this mean? What about, what about this? There's all those questions that we want to ask. But the nuance that we need to have, the wrestling with this, if we can just gently enter into that and live this out to the best of our ability by God's grace amongst our missional communities and in the church as a whole, we can rightly, lovingly proclaim the gospel in our lives to a, a world that needs to see and hear these truths. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us your word. Thank you that you have designed men and women as distinct, as equal, and as ordered. Help us, your people, live that out in all the nuance and wisdom that are required of it in our day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.